Are you passionate about health and nutrition? Then check out the Nutrition Academy. They offer the most comprehensive, innovative, and transparent health and nutrition educational resource on the planet. They strive to separate health misinformation from reality. They give their students the resources and skill sets to think critically about what they read and learn. So you can use the power of research to make better decisions for yourself, your family, and the people you serve. The Nutrition Academy have kindly offered all listeners a discount for this course. So you are able to try it out for yourself with a saving of $50. Just use the code TNN50 at thenutrition.academy or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 274 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Cliff Harvey, researcher and educator, to discuss the latest in keto research. Cliff and I explore two specific publications. Medium chain triglyceride supplementation increases postprandial ketone bodies in a dose-dependent manner. And who draft guidelines on dietary saturated and trans fatty acids, time for a new approach. You will learn everything from MCT dosage and how this is being studied to reverse the impacts of Alzheimer's disease, how the brain can thrive on an alternative fuel to glucose, and how when we look at the true effect of saturated fat on all-cause mortality outcomes, there is no data, yet our Australian guidelines are still not reflecting this. Hello, Cliff, and welcome back to the show. Thanks, Steph. Good to be back. Yes, it's been a little while, so I'd love for you just to set the scene um, with our new listeners as to a little bit of your background and um, certainly where you spend most of your time working these days. Yeah, so I guess the elevator narrative is that (laughs) I started in practice um, about 23 years ago now, uh, working as a a nutrition coach, nutritionist, personal trainer, and um, I was one of probably the first practitioners to, to really start going into keto and low carb. Um, it, it certainly wasn't because I, it just felt like a good idea or because I was trying to be contrary. It was really because when I was studying first time around at university, uh, a lot of the, the guidelines that we were given just sim- simply didn't make sense when I started to work out, you know, how much say fat someone required, how much protein they required to be healthy. There often wasn't enough 
in the diet left to give them this sort of arbitrarily high level of carbohydrate that we'd been told. So that led me to sort of go down the path of, of using various types of diets with clients, um, whether they be very low carb or low carb or moderately low carb. And because I was applying different types of diets, you know, some being very low carb, others being, you know, probably quite a lot higher in carb, I started to develop that concept that I call uh, carb appropriate, which is really trying to modify the diet to the individual, uh, basically finding, you know, the, the right diet for them uh, based on their condition and their activity levels and a whole range of other factors. And so I went through, um, you know, practice for a long time doing those types of things, eventually ended up back at university when um, the, the team here at AUT started really looking into low carbon ketogenic research. Uh, so I went back and did my master's degree in, uh, and doctoral research in MCTs and ketogenesis um, and particularly began to focus on what what could basically predict the type of diet somebody should be on. And so now I still work in clinical practice, but my primary role, I'd say, is as a researcher and educator. So I'm still involved in research, uh, doing scientific research on various types of diets, um, starting to look at various other avenues of health as well. Uh, and I teach nutrition through the Holistic Performance Institute. Very cool. I love it. Yeah. So there's a I lot- love it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. You've obviously got um, a good balance of all the areas that you're really passionate about. And I've... Um, been privileged to work beside you with Melrose in the past and I love hearing you speak um, and I thought for today it'd be really great to start to just go through some of the more recent research around you know MCTs and ketosis and that that um, individualized prescription which you and I have spoken about before but both certainly um, love to use as a lens to prescribe so one of the more recent um, pieces of research that came, I think, through, um, well, originally through Macquarie University in Sydney was titled Medium Chain Triglyceride Supplementation Increases Postprandial Ketone Bodies in a Dose-Dependent Manner. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk more about this study um, because I know it's, you know, certainly an area of this space that you love. Yeah, so I think that study... I mean, it was interesting because it was just another piece that, you know, added to that body of research that has um, been pretty clear that MCTs are ketogenic. In other words, when we take those MCTs, they will be preferentially um, converted to ketones in the body. And so they will increase, you know, those ketone levels. Uh, And there was previous research showing that 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 was, you know, linear, it was consistent, it was dose dependent. And this is just another piece of that puzzle, which shows that MCTs do increase ketones and it is obviously dose dependent. In other words, the more you take, the more you're going to increase those ketone levels. And that really, um, you know, it also speaks to some of the research we did. Uh, This one in particular was looking at the increase in ketones straight after meals, which is, you know, very interesting because if you add MCTs to meals, obviously you're going to get that increase in ketone production. But, but that, in some respects, is, is fairly self-apparent. I think most people would suspect that anyway or would expect there to be an increase in ketones if they're adding, say, MCTs to a meal or if they're taking MCTs in a shake or, or whatever. Uh, we looked at it slightly different in some of our research where we had people taking MCTs through the day and then we were testing their blood ketones first thing in the morning after a, a fairly long fast. So it would have been about a 12-hour or more fast after their last you know, meal uh, in, in the previous evening. 
and we found that there was still a, a very consistent effect on on ketone levels. Now, what that tells us, and when we marry it up with research like the um, study you've brought up, is that not only do MCTs increase that short-term ketone production, but they're also increasing uh, sort of medium long-term ketogenesis. In other words, they're encouraging the body to be producing ketones out of other fats as well. Because if that weren't the case, then the, the MCTs that people had taken on the previous day probably wouldn't have been having the same type of effect the following morning because they hadn't had the opportunity to take MCTs for, let's say, 12 or more hours. Right. Okay. So, yeah, I guess that's a really interesting um, angle, like you said, that's contributing to what's already been looked at by um, yourself and others. Now, with this particular study, what, what they were looking at doing is increasing doses of the MCT oil in increments of 15 mils per week for seven weeks. So in week one, they were consuming zero, and then in week seven, they were up to 90 mils divided into three daily doses. That's obviously 30 mils um, times three by the time they got to week seven. So can we talk more about specific doses and, and what you've learned? Um, and we might need to break it down into obviously who we're talking about because I know yeah. this particular study was um, more related to Alzheimer's and was an abstract at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference. So yeah, like before I go on, <laughs> let's talk more about those um, specific doses to start. Yeah, so it, it's a clever way to do it because it's very much, uh, I think, transitioning into translational research, which is critically important. You know, we can do a whole bunch of research in, in a Petri dish. We can do it in mice. We can then, you know, go, go further down that progression and do very, very controlled studies on on people in metabolic wards where we're feeding them, you know, exactly what they need, all that kind of stuff. But we also need to get to a point where we're applying things in a way that we would in clinical practice, which is not always the way that we would apply it in a very strictly controlled study um, because, you know, life gets in the way. And one of the cool things about showing dose effects and, and tolerance to different doses and things is that it starts to give us some idea about what we can do in practice. Now, I think you and I would have done this for years anyway. When we start someone on MCTs, we don't just suddenly put them on two tablespoons, three times a day no, <laughs> um, because most people wouldn't be able to tolerate that. Mm. Although that's actually just as an aside, the dose we used in our MCT study. So that was a pretty high dose. But, you know, most of the time, obviously we want to attenuate people or acclimate them to MCTs. So we might start even on a very low dose of say a, a teaspoon and then maybe increase that, uh, increase the frequency of that. So maybe a teaspoon three times a day, building up to two teaspoons, maybe up to a tablespoon three times a day. Uh, and then basically see where we're at, you know, so then we might be getting up to those threshold doses of say two tablespoons three times a day. I'd say for most people that is, you know, a decent high dose. Uh, and while it might be, might be tolerated by most people, um, I, I don't think there's necessarily much reason to go above that. Um, and there is some evidence, I'll have to try and recall it actually, that if we get up, you know, to 45 grams or more, so sort of three tablespoons or more in a serve and are taking that multiple times per day, then that can begin to adversely affect blood lipids. But I'd have to go back and check um, the, the studies to, 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 to remember exactly what that is. Yeah, that is fascinating because I know in this study in particular, they were obviously donating fasting blood, um, but the 
you know, the observations that were also made at the end of the study was that despite the increase in their consumption of MCT oil, there were no negative effects on BMI or fasting trigs or total cholesterol or anything like that, which I think is really interesting because, you know, as we talk more about MCTs, um, there is still that fear component for a lot of people because it's a pure fat, right? So I think this is a, a good measure to understand that, you know, for the, for the start, subject studies at least, they can get up to 90 mils a day um, without negatively impacting their blood lipids. So do you think that it's above 90 mils that we start to see an issue or are we talking more long-term? Because this, this study was only relatively short-term, of course. No, I think it is uh, in the relatively short term if people are taking really excessive doses. Okay. But what what we also need to consider is that, you know, you bang on, there, there is typically a far lesser or, or no effect on sort of blood lipids and whatnot when people are taking MCTs, especially when that's basically corrected for with diet. What I mean by that is if they're substituting some of their normal dietary fats with MCTs, they might even experience improvements in their blood lipids because the MCTs are not going to affect things like triglycerides and fatty acids in the blood as much as, say, a standard dietary fat, which is typically a long-chain fat. Now, certainly not that the long-chain fats are bad. It's just that MCTs have particular properties where they're, they're not you know, quite so easily maybe stored and they're not quite so easily um, carried around in the blood in the same form. They're more likely to be converted to ketones and all sorts of things. So we're getting a lesser impact there on blood lipid profiles through substitution. So I think that's one of the important things for people to remember is it's not just about adding a whole bunch of extra fat on top of the diet. <laughs> it's that when we take um, you know, different types of fats, they're often supplanting other fats in the diet, if you know what I mean. Oh, I, I totally agree. And I laugh because often people will say to me, oh, you know, I added an MCT coffee. I just didn't work for me. I felt like I was getting fat. <laughs> And yeah. like, I'm like, okay, let's break down what you're eating and look more closely at your macros and everything. And of course, it often comes out that they're trying to do, you know, relatively high carb and then add in fats as well. And we know that they've always got that seesaw type relationship. And as in, if you're adding in MCTs, then usually you're taking out a carbohydrate. And, you know, if you're not, then it can be problematic, certainly over a period of time. Yeah, well, I think I might have even told you this story years ago, but... Mm -hmm. One of my clients, oh, it wasn't actually a client, that's a, that's a lie, it wasn't a client. Someone had uh, contacted me and asked why they weren't losing weight. Uh, so we had a little bit of an email discussion before that person came in and um, I sort of asked what they were doing. Uh, they sent through an idea of what they're eating at the moment and it, it looked pretty pretty damn good, to be honest. I mean, it looked like the kind of diet you'd you know write out and put on the fridge and say, I'm, I'm doing really well. <laughs> so I went back to them and said, oh, well, is there anything else that you're doing? You know, are you taking any supplements or are you doing anything else to try and get any other sort of benefits, you know, really tried to dig down into what was going on because we hadn't had a proper consultation at this point. So I didn't have all the information I needed. And the, um, the person came back to me and said, oh, yeah, well, I am taking three tablespoons of coconut oil before every meal so that oh. I can get into and stay in ketosis because that's the way I figure I can lose body fat. And of course, <laughs> I immediately thought, well, wow, like 45 grams of extra fat before each meal, <laughs> you know, do the wow. math. That's a lot. 135 extra grams of fat in a day. Uh, we're talking about well over a thousand extra calories that's oh, yeah. being chucked in. You know, and it doesn't really, you know, th this idea that people have that 
energy in or calories simply don't matter if you're on the right type of diet. It's obviously not correct. You know, there are a lot of nuances within where our calories are coming from that have a massive impact on how easy it is for us to, to free up body fat or to, to function at our best. But there is still that first law of thermodynamics, which is critically important. And that's if we're putting in just way too much energy, the body can't compensate by upregulating metabolic rate enough. And we're still going to, um, at the very, at the very least, be resistant to body fat loss. And we might, um, you know, be more prone to putting on a lot more as well. Yeah, I mean, it's more complicated than this, but if you're consuming that much coconut oil, then the only fat that you're burning is your dietary fat. You're never going to be burning body fat, right? So, yeah, 1,200 calories off your um, teaspoon from coconut oil per day is a more, like for some people, more than they'd be eating in a whole day. Not that I recommend 1,200 calories a day, but, you know, that's the, that's the volume that we're talking about in, um, you know, what that person that you were speaking to has added on to their their overall intake so yeah you can definitely eat too much and fat's obviously super easy to overeat um especially if they're in you know almost liquid form exactly and and that also speaks to that idea that a lot of people have nowadays of you know we call it chasing ketones people wanting to be higher and higher and higher on those ketone readings because they figure the higher the better, because if they're higher in ketosis or deeper in ketosis, I should say, with higher ketone levels, then that is supposed to mean they're burning more fat. But of course, if the ketone levels are high because they're simply pumping in a huge amount of dietary fat and they are in you know, that ketogenic state and they're producing high levels of ketones, it certainly doesn't mean they're going to be losing fat. It probably means they're going to be resistant to fat loss because they're just putting in way too much fuel. And so this is why I try and counsel people to not chase ketones, more so chase the healthiest diet for you. And often that, that will for some people be ketogenic. They will end up being in ketosis, but there's no point just arbitrarily trying to push the levels really high by eating a truckload of fat. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And, you know, with the whole sort of biohacking craze that we have and I, I do like that up to a point but then you know what I see is people getting too crazy with their devices whether it's their CGM or their ketone measurements or whatever they're buying off amazon.com and they're getting really wrapped up in in those numbers I'd love to get your opinion on this like if we don't change our diet but we come become more efficient over time in utilizing those ketones aren't they then being burnt as a fuel and not available to be picked up in a reading by a ketone meter? So we could get a false negative. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's fairly clear that there is a certain level at which most people will end up. And, you know, it's a bit of a proxy number. It's relatively arbitrary, but we still think it's somewhere around 0.5 millimoles mm-hmm. of, you know, beta hydroxybutyrate in the blood is, is roughly ketosis but if someone is slightly lower than that it doesn't mean that they're not producing a lot of ketones you know as you just suggested what it can mean in some cases is that they're simply using those ketones and turning them them over very quickly and so because of that they won't be exhibiting those levels consistent with ketosis but um, does that matter I mean we then need to to look at what our outcome is if someone wants to be achieving a certain outcome whether it's a performance outcome or whether it's to lose some body fat or they've got you know, clinical outcomes they need to be achieving. More important than some arbitrary number is, are they achieving that? 
you know, what else is happening with their, their health measures or, you know, their blood markers of health, uh, what's happening with their body composition, you know, muscle to, to body fat ratios. Uh, most importantly, perhaps, how are they feeling? How are they performing? Um, you know, what, what's the energy like? All of those qualitative things are critically important as well. Uh, and that's why we, we obviously did some of that research in the, the lived experience of a ketogenic diet because we wanted to drill down a little bit more into how people felt. Because at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. You know, it's far more important that someone is feeling great and and happy and has a good mood and all those types of things rather than just seeing some arbitrary number on a on a blood prick meter. Yeah, which you can do with any degree of food quality, which we then often forget is one of the most important decisions we make. Like you can get to 0.5 or 1.5 or whatever you want to do from a millimole of BHB, but you could be eating rubbish. You could be not eating your six serves of veggies a day and, and so on and so forth. So we've got to remember that, yeah, that food quality is, is the priority. And, yeah, I don't think that getting caught up in measuring is the right thing. I mean, the, this circles back to, you know, our previous discussion around carb appropriate. Like we say the word keto and people will get to 0.5 or 1.5 millimoles on very different levels of macros, right? And that's where we've got to really remember that it's very individual. Like I know some people that can be producing really appropriate levels of ketones and they're having almost 200 grams of quality carbs a day. And then we will see others that need to be much, much lower than that. Exactly, exactly. And there's, you know, there's a lot of individual variability in, in our, you know, if we want to call it that tolerance to carbohydrate, um, how much we sort of benefit versus are at risk from high, higher amounts of carbohydrate. Uh, obviously, activity plays a massive role in that as well. The more active you are, it doesn't matter whether you're on a keto, low-carb, you know, higher-carb approach, you're still going to, to need more carbohydrate relative to your current diet. So I think people really need to get out of that mindset that different diets are defined by a, an absolute gram amount of carbohydrate. And what I mean by that is a lot of people will say, well, you know, to be in ketosis, you have to eat under 20 grams of carbs per day. Or they might say under 50 grams of carbs per day. Or then they'll say, well, if it's about 100 grams, it's not keto, it's a low-carb diet. <laughs> but as you said, you know, it's, it's so variable between individuals that you can have people in ketosis on 100 grams or 150 grams or 50 grams. It becomes somewhat meaningless it almost gets to the point where if we take a step back and get away from the numbers a little bit and take a quality approach to nutrition and let's say we, we think our client will benefit from a low carb diet and we just eliminate the obligate carbs in that first phase. So they're eating, you know, meat, vegetables, nuts, seeds, healthy fats, all that good stuff. They will probably end up in ketosis, you know, because there's not enough obligate carb there. But it won't really matter whether at the end of the day they're eating 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 grams of carbs. That's somewhat inconsequential. They will probably still end up in ketosis or at the very least they'll be producing a lot more ketones because that's simply what the body has to do. Um, you know, we also kind of think, I know I'm rambling a little bit here, but we, all, we also come across that situation where people think that being in ketosis is an on-off switch. You limit your carbs to a certain point and then suddenly you ramp up your, your ketone levels. Now, that happens to some degree, but it's also a spectrum. You know, we'll see people on the standard American-style diet who are about 0.1 typically. 
But then we might see people who follow a, a paleo or primal approach might be 0.2, 0.3, maybe even 0.4. They're, they're just sub what we consider ketosis. But a lot of times they're eating lots of carbohydrate just from natural un, unrefined sources. And then once people eliminate the obligate carbs, that's when they start to get up over 0.4, 0.5, 0.6. So it very much is a spectrum that's based on the totality of your nutrition, not just some random um, and arbitrary carb allocation. Yeah, it's not an on or off switch. I love that explanation. Were you always so sensible? <laughs> well, I think so. I think that's why I got into this thing. Yeah. Because I looked at the numbers and thought, this doesn't make sense. But yeah. you know, I also gravitated very quickly to to simplifying approaches mm-hmm. because it can become very complicated for all of us to, to be looking at nutrition and having to constantly worry about how much energy I'm taking and how much protein, carbohydrate, fat, you know, and all these other things, trying to put all these intricate pieces together. When in reality, sure, we might need to do that occasionally just to check in and make sure we're on track. But for the vast majority of time, we and our clients want to, to, to understand nutrition more conceptually and just basically be able to look at our plate and say, yeah, that looks good. You know, with a couple of palm sizes of protein, maybe three fifth sizes of veggies and some added fats. I mean, it gets, it's pretty simple, right? And it's not oversimplifying to the point of diminishing returns. It's actually simplifying to the point where we can be consistently um, taking in good quality food so that we can be the healthiest we can be over the longest period of time. Yeah. No, I totally agree. So I wanted to stay on this study for a moment because the volume of MCT I, I find quite interesting. You've been mentioning that, I think, correct if I'm wrong, your studies are based around roughly two tablespoons a day, so 30 mils, am I right? 30 mils three times a day. 30 mils three exactly. times a day. Yeah. Um, and in this particular study, it was more about acknowledging that MCTs are the ideal energy source for patients where you know, that brain is really needing a lot more ketone bodies like in Alzheimer's disease. Um, So just like, how do we decide whether we need 90 meals a day? Because it sounds like a lot to me. I think it is. And the the, the reality is I think a lot of people are going to experience gastrointestinal challenges at that dose. Now, they they may not all the time, but they might from, from time to time, and they certainly could if they haven't acclimated to it. So... You know, in terms of of the dosing, I typically get people to start with that lower dose of, say, a teaspoon, build up teaspoon by teaspoon until they feel that um, if they feel anything in the gut whatsoever, we'd either stop there and pull it back by maybe a teaspoon to, to find that consistent everyday type of dose. Now, that doesn't necessarily tell us what else needs to be done in the diet, but if someone wants to be taking MCT, I figured then that's a good way to see how much they can take and then they can kind of adjust from there based on everything else they need to be doing. Um, you know, the, the question often comes up then, well, can, can you do that in a diet that contains carbohydrate? And I, I believe that you can because the reality is you're going to be taking in some dietary fats anyway. You know, no one's going to be devoid of fat even on a higher carb diet. And I typically suggest that people want to take in, you know, 30% or more of their calories from from fat anyway, even if they are on a fairly high carb diet. And so some of that can come from MCTs and that does provide particular benefits, you know, obviously, like you say, for the brain and central nervous system. And that's, uh, you know, a pretty interesting area of research. And I think it's one of the most promising areas of keto research is in that whole 
neurodegenerative and also in the traumatic brain injury and concussion space. Me too. I'm fascinated by that because we only just, most for most people, they probably haven't even heard the news, but the fact that things like Alzheimer's are being looked at in that type 3 diabetes or through that lens is is quite a profound that we can start to really reverse it with our dietary choices. Absolutely. Mm, that's huge. And, you know, we're, we're looking there at, it's interesting because, let's say we look at diabetes or we look at Alzheimer's or other neuro, neurodegenerative disorders, because there is that association with the, you know, the very high carb diets and things. Now, what we're typically looking at there is not actually the macronutrient distribution of the diet in, in reality. You know, what we're really looking at there is that when diets are excessive in carbohydrate, that's typically because people are choosing refined foods that are very high in carbohydrate, particularly sugar. And so that's that, you know, end of the spectrum where people are eating a lot of, or you know, drinking soda and fizzy and eating lollies or whatever it happens to be. On the other end of the scale, we can see actually some negative effects from what appears to be low-carb diets, but they're actually not low-carb diets per se. What they are is people choosing refined foods that are higher in fat and concomitantly slightly lower in um, carbohydrate, like burgers and pizzas and whatnot. Vegetable oils. Well, sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so when, when we take a step back from either sort of extreme, because, you know, a low carb person is going to pick up the, the research that shows that there's an association with high carb diets and say, here we go, you know, high carb diets are associated with Alzheimer's, maybe a high carb advocate or lower fat advocate is going to pick up the other research which shows, oh, there's you know, poor mortality outcomes for people eating low carb. But really that they're not actually consistent with the data when we actually dig into the food data what we see is that the people in that middle band who tend to do best it's not because they're eating high or low carb it's because they're eating real food yeah you're eating more vegetables it's more nutrient replete you know so they've got nutrient dense unrefined diets and time and time again now we're seeing that the research is showing that that's the key for prevention but there can be circling back to low carb and keto and other things that might help with that process in the body there can be some specific benefits from maybe having those higher ketone levels, particularly for um, neurodegeneration and preventing, you know, that that process. Um, but also, once people are on that pathway, then obviously helping to treat that through a whole, you know, range of effects from reducing um, plaques and misfolded proteins in the brain, um, through to obviously just fueling brain cells that have uh, become damaged over time. Um, through to addressing uh, overexcitation in the brain, which in itself can be toxic in neurons. There's a whole bunch of things that are happening there. And it's, it's really interesting because it's like there's this accumulation of various things all working towards the same goal, which is to have a healthier brain. It's incredible. Like, I mean, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here, but we have to understand how simple it really is like if if a brain is deprived of glucose because of insulin resistance it needs a secondary fuel it needs to be able to use ketone bodies for energy but then we still hear people like those vegan doctors interviewed for game changers that are bang on committing to the fact that the brain must use glucose like why are some people so behind what's going on there why are we still not acknowledging how important ketone bodies are for the brain big question (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's a big, well, it, it's simply that people are not aware, I think, of the research. 
And, you know, I, I think people aren't aware of the research and they have often such strong positions and, and they've, you know, basically created their identities on particular conditions. Mm. Uh, well, particular positions, I should say, that it's very difficult to shift from that. But, you know, I think that's where we, we really need to be pragmatic. We need to be evidence-based and we, we really need to step back from, try to step back at least from any of the biases we have to look pragmatically at the research and say, well, what does this actually mean? You know, and I think a good example of that is, you know, when I'm teaching, uh, one of my courses is, is based on teaching the science behind ketosis and ketogenic diets and things. When we talk about diabetes prevention, I'm very clear with my students that if we look at the research as it stands right now, we can't necessarily say that a low-carb diet is best for preventing diabetes because there's actually not that much of an effect size between different diets so long as they're based on unrefined foods. So we might see really good results from you know, paleo, primal, Mediterranean, low-carb, and especially those variations of those that are based on good quality natural foods, like lots of vegetables and good quality proteins and healthy fats and all that kind of stuff. But when we get to the position of actually having metabolic syndrome or diabetes, I think most people who actually understand the research would say, well, yeah, if someone actually has diabetes or metabolic syndrome, then the, the best intervention for them is low carb because the systematic reviews, meta-analyses of the research tell us that it reduces average blood glucose levels by about 150% more than the, the supposed best practice diets like the Mediterranean diet. So we can be pragmatic and say that, hey, it, it, it probably doesn't matter too much for health overall and the protection of health, what people eat, so long as it's based on real food. But in certain instances, we need to understand that clinical conditions require particular interventions. I think if we look at it pragmatically like that, we can we can pretty much all get along because we don't need to be stuck in one particular bias towards a diet for everything. That, that just doesn't exist. You know, no two people on the planet are exactly alike. Yeah, true. I think coming back to the the research is is the point though, because of course this particular research around acknowledging that the brain can live off other fuels than glucose is relatively new compared to what we once thought. Like, gosh, even though well, I don't it's, know how many decades ago it was, it's it's new, but it's you know it, it's not it's not that new. So it's a bit of a surprise that there are some people who are still out there saying that, you know, the brain can only use glucose. And if it doesn't have enough available dietary carbohydrate, the brain is going to start to die and all these things that we hear from <laughs> fear mongers. Mm. I mean, we know from research back in the 1960s, I mean, we certainly know from early epilepsy research going back about 100 years that, uh, you know, when people were following ketogenic diets, there, there simply wouldn't have been enough carbohydrate to provide these supposed amounts that the brain and central nervous system use. And so there, there had to be some supplanting of fuel there. So the suspicion was always there from, you know, 100 plus years ago that the brain could use other fuels. It was relatively quickly shown. And right through the sort of 60s, 70s, um, there was fairly compelling evidence presented that that was the case. You know, you go back to um, some of Cahill's early research where they were um, IVing insulin into patients. And so their blood glucose would plummet, right? And also IVing ketones into them. So their blood glucose would plummet to a point that should be creating hypoglycemic coma, 
but it didn't. And their brain cells weren't dying. So neurons weren't dying because they were also supply, uh, supplemented with these ketones. And so that shows pretty clearly that the, you know, these ketones can have a protective effect for the brain and they can obviously supplant that glucose reliance um, for the brain and central nervous system. So the evidence has been around for a long time. It just takes a long time to filter through, particularly to, to, to sort of undergraduate level education. I think that's one of the big challenges is we have a lot of people who go into the sciences they do their undergrad science degrees and it's almost like it's simpler just to say, you know what, the brain relies on glucose, which is actually true. But then to say that it only does that and it can't use other fuels, that's obviously just scientifically incorrect. Yeah. And I agree with you. The research has been there for a long time, but it's almost like it was hidden throughout the um, you know, the high carb craze that we went through in the Western world. And now everyone's opened their eyes to the fact that we've essentially had the wool pulled over our eyes. We're really starting to unpack research that might have already been there. That might have always been there, but we were blind to it. Yeah, and I think one one thing there is you're 100% right. It's because if you have a, a, a position in which basically the the idea is that very high carb and very low fat is the best, there is still some acceptance within that model of, say, higher fat, lower carb approaches being okay, but certainly not desirable, but okay for certain health conditions. And that's why, you know, the ketogenic diet was always there as a potential uh, therapeutic for epilepsy. But outside of that, no one really looked at it in, in too great a depth because it was seen to be such an unfavorable diet for other outcomes. You know, it was seen to be so bad for cardiovascular outcomes and all these types of things. As people then realized that that wasn't the case, and in fact, it didn't really fit anthropologically to, to just have people eating massive amounts of carbohydrate irrespective of anything else going on in their life. And we started to realize that, you know what, fat's not an actual absolute risk factor for cardiovascular disease and neither is saturated fat and all these types of things. Then that starts to shift the whole conversation where people start to re reevaluate why we had this position in the first place and why the evidence is telling us something quite different to what position statements that aren't based on evidence have been telling us. Yeah. Fascinating. So do you take 90 mils of MCT per day? <laughs> no, I don't. I'm fascinated by this volume. That's all. <laughs> yeah, we um, we certainly found in our research, and it was a it was a relatively short study because we were basically looking at just the keto induction phase. So we had a relatively long study relative to the time it takes people to get into ketosis, but it wasn't a long study. Um, you know, by, by study standards, it was only a three week study. And we had people taking that 30 mils three times a day, so they're taking 90 mils or um, six tablespoons of MCT a day. And we found that overall their, their symptoms of, you know, what's called keto flu or those symptoms of keto induction were, were probably much better than those who were taking the control oil, which was a long-chain fat. Um, they probably had better mood and a whole range of other benefits, but they did experience greater gastrointestinal distress. And that's a fairly well-known side effect of very high doses of MCT. Of course, it's not a problem with lower doses. And so I think for most people, most of the time, it, it probably is right on the threshold there of what they, they probably could tolerate. Um, because I'm not consistent enough with acclimating myself up, I don't take that, that volume. Um, I probably take 
you know, one to two tablespoons, one to three times a day, depending on how many shakes I'm having. I basically just chuck empty teas in my shakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's, yeah, that, that's my sort of simple approach to it. Yeah. And is that the level of detail that you would teach your client when you're not working with someone that's after that therapeutic effect, like in this study where they're looking to treat Alzheimer's? Yeah, typically, mm-hmm. um, you know, we sort of generally I will have worked out what their macronutrient requirement is and they won't necessarily be interested in the, the calories and how many grams of this and that they should be having per day or per meal. But I will, I will give them that information. They don't need to track it, but I'll also translate that into a diet plan in which they'll have, you know, let's say they have a smoothie option then it will be consistent with what their meal should require. So yeah, it might have, you know, one tablespoon of MCT or it might have two, uh, might have differing amounts just depending on what, what they require. Um, but obviously there is some value in having other fats as well. And mm. so I will often have, you know, MCT and maybe mix that up. Uh, let's say it is a smoothie, maybe have some nut butter in there as well as MCT. Um, or they might have some fish oil with their uh, MCT in a smoothie as well. And they'll be using other dietary fats in their meals like olive oil and whatnot. Yes, of course. Interesting. Especially I, that, that combination of MCTs and, and omega-3s, I think, is, is really powerful too. Yeah. You know, because obviously DH, DHA being such an important component um, of, of, the of the brain and so mm. important for cognition, learning memory and all those types of things, you sort of see this uh, almost a synergistic effect, I think, between MCTs and DHA in particular. But also what a lot of people forget and a lot of the work that I've done recently is looking at the effect of both MTTs and omega-3s in the gut. And because we, we think so much about the effect of MCTs on ketones, we often don't think about their, their effects in the gut in feeding beneficial bacteria and helping to, um, to correct dysbiosis and, and one of being one of the, the key evidence-based treatments for candida overgrowth and things like that. And omega-3s too are a very um, beneficial compound for helping reduce dysbiosis in the gut. So those things, again, working hand in hand, um, pretty powerful combo. Yeah, because I would probably get my clients to have, you know, 70 to 80% of their fats from omega-3s and there just wouldn't be room to fit that many tablespoons of MCT on top of that for most people because that's 800 calories in itself if you were to do that 90 meals. So I think it's, yeah, important to acknowledge that difference in dosage around therapeutic effect versus what you might add to a a real food diet, which is going to be predominantly omega-3. Exactly. And I think when when you are working with people who have neurodegenerative disorders, there's there's some, I want to phrase this correctly, you you tend to be a little bit more extreme than what you would with your, your average gen pop type patient. And that's because, you know, with those neurodegenerative disorders, the survival times are incredibly low. You know, we're looking at three to nine years survival time post-diagnosis for a lot of those uh, conditions like Alzheimer's. And that's generally because diagnosis is a little bit too late as well, because people don't realize the the creeping sort of effects that we're um, experiencing. But because there is such a short window, you're going to really, you know, be quite precise with what you're doing you're going to have higher levels of MCTs. You're going to really try and get those ketones up a little bit more to really provide that fuel for, for the brain and central nervous system and all the other ancillary benefits. Um, you're obviously going to be providing those omega-3s as well, but um, it's going to be that 
probably that little bit more intensive than what you would need to apply with someone who was wanting to prevent those things later in life and just to be as healthy as they can be now. Yeah, totally different priorities. I appreciate that. Fascinating. It was a relatively small study, but one I'm interested in seeing a lot more around. Um, Do you have anything like that coming up around Alzheimer's? Are you doing more um, TBI stuff? Well, I'm not doing any TBI research myself. There is some going on at at AUT and I've been um, just loosely involved in in chatting with the guys about that and giving my sort of Mm -hmm. input as to what I know about keto and things. Um, It's a pretty slow progression in the TBI space because there's so many different things being looked at right now that, um, you know, there's only a limited amount of time for any one university or researcher to be looking at different things. So there's, uh, you know, a lot going on in the creatine space. Um, there is going to be more and more, I think, for MCTs and exogenous ketones and ketogenic diets, uh, lion's mane mushroom. There's certainly going to be a lot going on. One of my areas that I'm particularly interested in now is um, it, it's fairly broad, actually, and, and we've got a whole bunch of projects that we're potentially going to launch into. So we're really mu- very much in a formulation phase at the moment. Um, but a lot of it's geared towards the the general idea of anti-aging or, you know, reducing that that effect of cellular degradation over time. Um, there's also some interesting stuff around various mushrooms that we want to look into, um, whether that be sort of the, the memory and, and learning and cognitive effects of something like lion's mane, um, right through to the long-term health benefits of maybe even psilocybin mushrooms and things. So we've got a lot of various projects that could start um, and at the moment we're basically trying to pick what we what we can and can't do <laughs> <laughs> awesome well we'll stay tuned for that but the last topic i wanted to um explore with you today was around um an article that was published in the british medical journal so it was last year i believe but it's in relation to the world health organization guidelines which keep on telling us to reduce our saturated fat consumption or to maintain it around sort of 10 percent so i wanted to get your thoughts on that and and what we should be doing with you know i guess those recommendations and our saturated fat intake yeah so it's an interesting one because i i think the 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 claim is is always going to be that with a significant amount of saturated fat there is almost like there's a proxy it's a progression by proxy. And I'll explain what I mean by that. You know, when we have increases in saturated fat or we have populations that are eating more saturated fat, there, there generally is an association there with LDL cholesterol and, and total cholesterol as well. And so because those also have an association with long-term cardiovascular disease, cardiovascular disease mortality outcomes, then that's pretty much where a lot of the, the guidelines come from right? They're still relying on that progression through saturated fat into increases in LDL and total cholesterol. The, the having an association. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so you've mm-hmm. got a circuitous multi-step process. Whereas when we just look a little bit more simply, and this will come in for some criticism as well, but when we look at it a little bit more simply in terms of the, the true effect of saturated fat versus all-cause mortality outcomes, there's really nothing there. You know, we can't see a consistent effect of increases in fat overall or increases of saturated fat and those those long-term 
endpoints, particularly cardiovascular mortality, and more particularly, what's most important when we're looking at a population level, all-cause mortality. And so because we don't see that direct link, um, really it obviously throws into doubt any of the recommendation to, to drastically reduce saturated fat, mainly because it also complicates dietary guidelines. It, it complicates things from a public health standpoint. What I mean by that, when we tell people to reduce this and increase that and maybe watch out for this and you know eat more of that, it becomes very difficult for people to actually apply that. You know, if you're looking for low salt, um, low saturated fat, low total fat, you know, you've got all these things you're looking for, you're going to end up eating a whole bunch of refined food pretty much. It's also going to be very confusing, obviously, to, to make those supposed best choices when you're shopping. Put that in contrast to just having more, more conceptual ideas of, okay, I want to eat more unrefined foods, you know, and have messaging going out there that, okay, we should just eat more vegetables or, hey, if it looks like it did off the tree or out of the farm or, you know, it looks like an animal, whatever, then you should probably eat more of it. People actually understand that a bit more. And so yeah. I think one of the big narratives that's coming out in the discussions with between researchers is that we shouldn't be overcomplicating things when the effect sizes are very, very small or where we can't see that consistency of effect. And this particularly came out in um, the, the recent systematic review meta-analysis of the evidence around red meat and mortality outcomes. Now, is there an effect of red meat on mortality? Probably. Is it confounded? Almost definitely. Hell yeah. Is it... Yeah, exactly. Mm. Is it very small? Yes. So because it's so small, should we really be focusing in on that one thing? You know, when it may not actually be an effect at all. And if it is, it's so tiny, it's probably having no meaningful effect. You know, this is that whole idea of clinical meaningfulness. We need to look at that and not just look at the supposed statistical significance for a whole bunch of modeling that people do, because that's not the way we actually get the best results because yeah, it's, look, it's distracting. Yeah. It's confusing. I mean, that's clear because people are so paralyzed with what to do because you're right. It's been really complicated. And um, this conversation around the guidelines, um, I know there's a, a researcher from SA where she's really trying to push um, a, a conversation around, yeah, whole foods, like, why don't we take away the focus around um, specific macronutrients, which doesn't mean much to the layperson, but talk about whole unprocessed foods, which have, you know, le way less harmful effects than what, you know, take away in processed food and foods that might have some saturated fats, but are going to have vegetable oils and a whole host of human intervention. So then of course, yes, it gets very confounded because what's actually causing the issue, like I'll put my money on vegetable oils any day of the week over a whole food based saturated fat. I mean, eggs aren't going to kill us for Christ's sake. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's very difficult in research to, to adequately correct for all the confounding influences. You know, there, there was a, um, big study came out which was very heavily reported on the, the effect of red meat on um, mortality outcomes 
And they tried to correct for things like smoking and, and drinking and activity and all sorts, but it's very difficult to do. And when you see the the raft of things that were, were also going on, it makes, you know, those very small effects on mortality, you've really got to it really cast them into doubt. What I mean is that those who are eating the, um, it was actually sort of framed in this way. Those who reduced meat intake the least had the worst mortality outcomes. But con- um, coincidentally, they were also those who uh, drank the most, <laughs> exercised the least, smoked the most, and had the, um, the, the, the greatest change in body weight negatively uh, over the course of the study. So they either didn't lose as much weight or they put on weight. And so we're looking at adiposity, we're looking at smoking, alcohol, you know, lack of activity, all these various things starting to accumulate. And sure, we can try and correct for that statistically, but it's very difficult to do. And if after all the correction that we've done, there's a tiny, tiny effect size, we'd have to say, well, that could well be within that margin of error from our statistical modeling. And so it doesn't make a lot of sense. When we look at the time in which some of these studies have been done, that's something people forget as well. There's a temporal aspect to this where in that research, the basically the, the cohort going through that sort of long-term observational study, it was during the time that people were being told to reduce meat intake and make all these other lifestyle changes to reduce their risk of cardiovascular disease. But you can imagine that those who were the most committed to health would go to their doctor and their doctor would say, well, you know what, your cholesterol is going up a little bit. So you should do all of these things. You should drink less and you should exercise more. Um, you should stop smoking and you should also reduce your meat, red meat intake. The, the, the red meat intake at this point is basically a phantom. It doesn't mean anything because it was the, the culture of health at the time. It was a very small part of the, the sort of intervention and the actual things that had the biggest effect were all these various lifestyle things that have been put into place. Absolutely. And then we keep blaming meat. And then just like coconut oil, which comes around on social media every couple of months, so too does red meat. And then we haven't even spoken about quality. We haven't even spoken about the difference between pasture-raised, grass-fed, grass-finished, and the worst of the worst in the outback of you-know-where, where there's hormones and antibiotics and grains and it's just the conversation is just it drives me crazy because and and how are you getting your red meat yeah you know that that's a massive part and that's something that i'm always really interested in digging into which i often do whenever these studies come out where the food data is available i generally delve into that because often you know where people's meat comes from and in terms of their diet not even provenance just in terms of the diet how are they consuming it that's often a massively underestimated factor. And, you know, again, it's like the, the ERIC cohort, which showed that the low-carb, um, those eating low-carb died earlier. Well, they, they weren't low-carb anyway, but it's because they were in that sort of burgers and pizza type cohort. And, yes, they were probably eating quite a lot of red meat, but it was coming from a, a lot of fast food. You know, as compared to that, we start to eliminate those things and we look at people who are eating let's say meat with lots of vegetables and it's based on unrefined food, those effects fall to basically nothing. Mm. So what, what, any thoughts on why we're still having that conversation? Like why every couple of months it's either red meat or coconut or being blamed? Is it again that we're just not looking at the research? 
I think it's in some in some instances people aren't looking at, at the research, um, and that's especially true I think with coconut oil because it's it's very easy just to take the position where well coconut oil it's predominantly saturated fat saturated fat does this and this and this and then that leads to this you know it's going through that process again in the same way mm. but if we actually look at the research on coconut oil specifically we see that you know what it doesn't really have that raft of effects in fact it's probably a pretty good addition or component i should say of the diet i don't want to say addition because then people start loading lots of coconut oil on top of their existing diet i don't mean that at all but as part of the the sort of compendium of fats that we use in a diet it's great and um you know one thing we also need to consider within that is we've overly framed the debate around saturated fat unsaturated versus monounsaturated what hasn't been taken into account is is other components you know we could have easily just as easily chosen to structure things much more around short chain versus medium chain versus long chain fats and look at the differences there or what their functional endpoints are in the body. You know, there's lots of different ways to, to categorize fats and we've basically just fallen into this, this paradigm of looking at it solely as saturated fat versus the rest and then building all our models around that. Um, but now there's some really interesting research coming out looking at the differential effects of, say, chain length. And that's an important part of the conversation to have as well, because, you know, we've discussed this before, the, the short chain fats are, you know, saturated fats, the medium chain fats are saturated fats, but they're not bad for us, mm. you know, that they don't have this raft of negative effects unless we massively overconsume them. And so that uh, throws a lot of doubt on these arbitrary ideas that, well, it's just this whole class of fats is a problem because obviously there's a lot more to it. There absolutely is. And so in this study, the statement is putting a blanket recommendation on saturated fat is inappropriate because not all saturated fats are harmful to help. And that's what we've missed <laughs> for the last yeah. five decades. Exactly. And I, and I would, again, go back to the whole idea of, you know, really reevaluating effect sizes because if we're seeing tiny, tiny effects and it's based on a, a lot of modelling, then that can that can always be challenged and it can always be you know debated so it's an interesting academic exercise but should very very tiny effects that are open to a lot of very valid criticism should they immediately transition out into public health guidelines no they shouldn't hmm. and i think um you know a lot of journalists and science reporters and things need to be a little bit more aware of the messaging they're putting out as well because it's very easy to to seize on a study blow it up with a clickbait headline and have people then become even more scared and confused about what they're eating. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I just hope that is something that we can change. I don't know if I'm being too optimistic, but I just feel for the people that continue to get so confused because of those clickbait headlines. Like they, they just continue to come around every few months, as I said. Yeah. And I mean, I guess we can all understand where it comes from, but mm. it's. You're so diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> myself well, not so much big food <laughs> well i think as well we we have to take some responsibility for it you know I, I recently um i just wrote a series of articles and i'm I'm putting them out over the next couple of weeks about the effect of a whole range of things on health from social media through to you know clickbait headlines advertising all this kind of stuff 
And the, the overriding concept that I began writing these articles under was that we've got a problem with free at the moment. You know, we're so addicted to free stuff, free information, free media, that we put ourselves in a position where it's not actually free, right? We, we get all this free media, but we're paying for it through our time, our attention, our stress, our anxiety, and through advertising. So obviously to drive our eyeballs onto a website, there needs to be aggressive clickbait headlines. There need to be things that are very emotive that drive our anger or drive our, our stress. And so we click on that, you know, the, the, the media outlets hoping that we click on the advertising, but we've kind of played into that as well. So I think we need to take some responsibility of, of maybe not buying into that so much and seeking out better, more unbiased sources of media, maybe being prepared to pay for some media instead of just wanting everything for free. And my thesis, at least, on this whole topic is that if we do that, we'll probably end up actually spending less overall, not just in terms of our time and our anxiety, but I think we'll actually end up spending less money as well because we'll, we won't be so prone to getting those responsive or reactive purchases. I know that seemed tangential, but it just, you know, all I'm getting at there is that I think because we've driven that so much, it makes sense that reporters are trying to get more and more eyeballs on pages by having more and more inflammatory headlines. And so that causes them to misinterpret research almost um, disingenuously. Mm. Yeah, it continues to the confusion, sadly. Yeah, yeah. And then we all end up being being confused. Yeah. It's a fascinating space. There's so much more I want to talk to you about, but I think um, we will get you back on the show again next um, to continue the conversation about the research in this space. But it was just absolutely so fascinating to have you on the show again today. Is there anything else that you want to share about um, what you're up to next? I know you've been pretty busy already. Yeah, so it's a big year for us. We're really focused on just getting getting great, pragmatic education out through the Holistic Performance Institute. You know, we really think that's our mandate is because we are scientists and we're evidence-based, but we're also holistic. Um, I think we're in a pretty unique position to to be getting good information out there to people. So we're really just working on our course material and, um, you know, aligning with a number of registering bodies and all sorts so that our graduates can go on and, and actually be in this field and be really good advocates for health as well, either as, you know, nutrition coaches, health coaches or nutritionists. Yeah, so exciting. So that's the Holistic Performance Institute or Holistic yeah. Performance Nutrition on social media. Yeah, that's the one. Awesome. Thank you so much, Cliff. We'll have you on the show again very soon, but we're really grateful for your knowledge and time today. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Reel. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. 
Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash The Wellness Couch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.